0: Sometimes when you're driving down the road all by yourself you begin to hear a voice that tells you you need to look around pay attention maybe something isn't quite right that voice is me it's the voice of Gord. 19 anyone got a copy out there this is gordy locks come on hey everybody welcome to another episode of voice of Gord, special truck driver appreciation week podcast number three should be releasing the morning of wednesday september 13th in the interest of this particular week i'm bringing you a guest today who's actually documenting some legitimate appreciation Independent journalist, writer, former columnist at the Toronto Star, National Post, Toronto Life Magazine, Chatelaine, many publications across Canada. Miss Donna Laframboise, whose latest project is interviewing working-class folks all the way across the country that took part in the Freedom Convoy. No politicians, no organizers, no media people. Just the regular folks that went and supported the convoy took their trucks to Coutts, took their trucks to Windsor, took their trucks to Ottawa to stand up against the venal and vindictive COVID regime of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. In documenting these stories, Donna has come across many letters from children and people of all ages handed to the truckers along the side of the road at the protest sites, and all of them basically carried the, the same message. They wanted to express gratitude and thanks for the truckers taking a stand and doing their best to bring an end to the nightmare in Canada and bring something resembling normal life to the citizens of this great country. I'm, I'm really happy to bring Donna to you guys today. Her story is awesome. She shares her story of how she got into journalism, uh, various people she met along the way, stories she's written on, tells us a little bit about her book, some of the people she's met. And she really she really does, you know, express serious gratitude to us, to the folks that took part in the Freedom Convoy. And I want you guys to go and check out her project over at Substack, also called Thank You Truckers, where she releases little snippets of the book before its publication next winter. All right, thanks, anybody. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email me, gordylocks at protonmail.com. If you enjoy this episode, tell a friend, send it to them, email it to them, put it on your social media, smash that subscribe button on my Substack, or add me to your list or whatever on Spotify or whatever podcast platform you choose. All right, guys. Well, without any further delay, let's get to Thank You Truckers with Donna Laframboise. All right. day, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Voice of Gord. I'm Gord, and this is my voice. The other voice you're going to hear today is that of a very long-careered freelance journalist, investigative reporter, um, former vice president of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, author, recently a road tripper to eastern Canada. Uh, please welcome to the show Ms. Donna LaFramboise. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. Um, Thank you for joining us, Donna. Um, So I've been I bumped into you on Twitter a few months ago and I've been watching your posts. I believe you're writing a book.
1: I am. I'm writing a book about um, the truckers who went to Ottawa because we haven't heard the stories of the ordinary folk who got behind the wheel and drove there and they thought they were going for the weekend and it turned out they ended up there for, for the better part of a month. Um, so those stories are part of Canadian history and, and we have a right to, to, to hear them and record them and, and pass them down to our children.
0: Right, yeah. So, uh, it, uh, there's been a number of books that have come out about the Freedom Convoy recently, um, mostly by people associated with the organizers and/or their spokespeople, uh, uh, Mr. Dichter, Mr. Marazzo, then um, a couple of journalists, Andrew Lawton. But I think, um, from what I'm reading on your wonderful Substack, because you're drip, drip, dripping out these little interviews you've done with people. You're specifically focusing on the guys that went. You're not, it doesn't strike me like you're talking to the organizers, the media, the government, like none of that stuff. You're, you're just talking to the truckers.
1: That's right. The people on the ground, the people on the ground. And I should say that, you know, I thought originally it was just going to be the stories of the truckers, the stories of the truckers. But then I found out that there are all kinds of other folk who went to Ottawa. And, you know, it's sort of like an army. You have you have your your fighting troops, but then you also have all the support people behind them and all sorts of Canadians went to Ottawa as well. And they weren't necessarily driving a big rig, but they went there to help out. And some of their stories are. Are just are amazing so so it's turned into you know I've really since I started doing this research I've realized that there are two halves of this story there are the truckers and then there are all the folks who supported them and who who you know because if if they didn't have that support I doubt they would have managed to hang on in minus 30 below in Ottawa for um you know for as long as they did but there it really was a community behind them
0: yeah, I noticed that myself. I'm also a tracker. I, I I live in the United States now, but I am Canadian. Um, I I went home for the first weekend of the protest and welcomed the convoy, um, from from the west. I I stood on an overpass on 417 out near El Monte with a bunch of my friends and thousands of other people, and then awesome. went and then went downtown to Ottawa and hung out for that entire first weekend. Um, it was a wonderful and heartwarming experience to say the least uh, despite the cold and in spite of it and in spite of the icy cold heart of Justin Trudeau and Canada's ruling class but um, I did notice as well that it, it became apparent to me immediately that it wasn't even about the truckers anymore even by the time they got to Ottawa this was something much much deeper and spoke to the sort of spirit of humanity and and the desire to sort of end the excesses of the COVID regime and all that came with that. But I I wanted to observe, um, you know, you've been a journalist for a long time and and we'll get to that, but um, in the fact that you're talking, you're you're speaking with all these truckers rather than the organizers and everybody else, it's, it, it it feels somewhat like a a project reminiscent of Studs Terkel. Do you know who that is?
1: Yes yes in a way yes his his oral history um thank you that's a i consider that a compliment um you know he did marvelous things just going out and talking to ordinary people and recording their their stories and their impressions and their memories and yes and um and it's from a um you know part of society that we don't hear much about which is a real shame
0: yeah yeah his his book working which was published i believe in 1974 you know, it's it's quite the tome. I think it's longer than the Bible. It's a pretty, pretty thick book, and it interviews, like, hundreds of people all across the spectrum of the working class and all strata of society, from, you know, janitors to teachers to truckers to movie actors. You know, like, it, it runs the gamut, and it's, um, like I say, quite a piece of oral history. Um, I, I recently uh, reread parts of Mr. Turkle's book, uh, in fact, uh, I, I took the section where he interviewed a trucker and reposted it on my Substack. Um, you know, uh, awesome. Yeah, and I mean, when you when you look at the concerns and the life of, of this uh, fella he interviewed, I think his name was Frank Decker. He was like a steel hauler guy who uh, lived in Chicago and worked around, you know, uh, Wisconsin and in the, in the Midwest. And you know, uh, plus ça change, you know, like <laughs> not much changes. <laughs> Um, So tell us your story, Donna. How is it uh, you got into journalism, writing? um, Tell us all the various places you worked, maybe how your experience was there, uh, how it is you came to be part of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, and um, where you got to today.
1: Well, I'm, um, I'm very working class. I grew up in Northern Ontario. I was born in Sudbury. My father was an auto mechanic and my mother never finished high school. She got married at 16. She had me when she was 18. And I, when I grew up, I didn't know anyone who'd gone to university. It was not a given that I was going to um, go to university, that I would have any higher education. Um, but my parents gave me a wonderful gift that they both read, graciously uh, it was pop fiction it was westerns it was romance novels but they both read all the time and that was a great great example uh, when I was growing up so I I love to read and and pretty early, probably by my early teens, I was convinced that that's what I wanted to do was be a writer. Um, and um, I, um, you know, from northern Ontario, to go down to the big city in Toronto and get into the journalism program at Ryerson was a huge, huge deal in the early 1980s. And you had to go down and you had to have a portfolio and you had to do an interview. And uh, and I managed to get in, which was amazing. And one of the things that happened very early in that first term was we had a guest speaker who people to put up their hands if they were from the working class and there were two of us in the entire class of 30 plus journalists um so you know that tells you something about about um who is writing the news and whose perspectives are not being represented
0: right Um, right um there's a Somebody who's made this observation in a number of podcasts I've listened to and just sort of following his career as I have, because he's a little bit older than me, but like, much like yourself, I'm working class. Also, half of my family is from Sudbury. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. My great grandfather, uh, Rudolfo Fluviani, was an Italian immigrant that went to work at ENCO. He died there. Yeah, he died in uh, uh, one of those elevators that went in the shafts. Oh, no. Dismembered itself and fell to the bottom, and there went uh, great grandpa Rudolfo with him. Oh my, but, um, yeah, I still have lots of family in Sudbury. Um, uh, my one of my cousins lives in Garson. Um, I've got friends and family up around Valkyran. and uh, my dad has a sort of summer escape place in Noelville, which is okay. south and east of Sudbury. Yeah. yeah, yeah, uh, my grandpa was sort of from Meaford, but he met my grandmother who was the granddaughter of, uh, Rudolfo or daughter of Rodolfo, Yeah. My, my noni, she, um, she worked for my other great grandpa, uh, William McGill senior, who was some kind of either the warden or one of the managers at the Burwash prison camp, South of Sudbury. Oh my. Yeah. My grandmother was an interpreter because she spoke, read and wrote like english italian french all these languages and she was kind of his secretary and then before my grandpa shipped off to to war in europe driving a tank in a canadian uniform across europe Mm. uh, he met my grandmother uh, while visiting his dad and soon thereafter they got married and had a kid in 1944 my uncle chris and then immediately i don't know uncle chris was born while my grandpa was overseas Right. And he didn't meet his own son in, for two years till 1946 when he got home.
1: Oh, my. Yeah.
0: So, and I, you know, anyway, I, I as well share your passion for reading. Uh, my dad's a trucker. My mom is the daughter of, you know, Scottish immigrants. My mother was born in Scotland. And uh, my, my grandfather on my mom's side was also a voracious reader. Every day he would buy the Toronto Star. The Toronto Sun, the Globe and Mail, and then the National Post when it came out, and he was always buying newspapers and always reading books, constantly, constantly reading books. Um, He didn't have a post-secondary education either, and neither did I. I barely finished high school. But one thing I've always done is read, 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 and paid attention. And so anyway, this guy, Matt Taibbi, who used to write for Rolling Stone and Mm -hmm. is sort of one of the people behind the recent release of the Twitter files yes many times he has mentioned in various interviews that journalism in America used to be a working-class occupation especially when the media was more dispersed and like there was more local newspapers and more local and regional magazines um, many of which are no longer with us right especially in the age of the internet and social media
1: yes yeah so um so yes Matt is one of the um, few American journalists that I can think of off the top of my head who, who comes from that working class tradition as well and um, so um, so yeah so getting back to my story quickly I I, I ended up dropping out of journalism at Ryerson and um, and oh, wow. Yeah, and then I did a um, an undergraduate degree in English and uh, wait for it, women's studies at the University of Toronto. Now that this was the the 1980s and um, I um, I would like to say that there was more rigor in some of the the uh, women's studies um, courses then than I think than I, I, um, then I- it appears there is now. Um, you know, I remember um, a, a history professor who was hap- happened to be teaching us Canadian women's history, um, handing back papers and saying, now I don't want you to tell me whatever the fashionable feminist theory is about this. I want you with to point to historical sources to make your argument. And that was a bit of a shock for some of the students. But so I feel that um, my experience of a women's studies degree was, was, was perhaps better than what is on offer right now. And, I, and these days I would really, really um, um, perhaps um, encourage people to think of taking other courses other than that. Um, that.
0: <laughs> so um, uh, speaking of women's studies, um, you would be familiar then with Camille Polia.
1: Yes, yes, yes. So
0: where I'm sitting as the crow flies, it's about 26, 27 miles to where Camille Paglia grew up from me. Um, oh, yeah. She- She's from a little place called Endicott, New York, which is kind of near Binghamton, a little bit east and south of me. And Camille Paglia, also uh, the daughter of working class folks. Endicott was one of these sort of it's now, you know, whatever I guess you would call it a rust belt town. Uh, There used to be an IBM plant there and it was uh, Endicott's next to another town called Johnson City, which was named after a shoe factory that employed like tens of thousands of people at one time. Well, yeah. So, you know, she she, she sort of grew up in the sort of twilight years of, uh, you know, America's industrial might, as it were, in a very working class community.
1: Right, right. And, um, and you can tell because her, um, you know, I remember it was the mid nineties and there was a bit of a, a a feminist dissident movement. And that was, I was part of that. And I wrote my first book back then, which, you know, basically said, Hey, I'm a feminist and I believe in equality, but we don't have to slam men and we don't have to treat them like shit. Um, Come on people. Um, You know, let's be reasonable. And Camille, Polly, was a part of that, that wave. And, um, and, you know, I remember how refreshing it was to hear her cause I was a, you know, I was a young woman then in my twenties and um, to hear her say, you know, when there's a natural disaster, we will remember why men are important because it's the working class <laughs> men who are going to come and rescue you. And it's the working class men who are going to be rebuilding the infrastructure, um, you know, and, um, and, and, You know, and I think that's very important. So, you know, I've been interviewing all sorts of truckers from different parts of the country and people um, associated with those truckers who went to Ottawa, -like, like mechanics, who went there to help out. They just threw all their tools in a trailer and they went with their buddies who were going up to Ottawa. And... And the wonderful thing for me about meeting all of these people is these are very competent people. These are people who know how to do things. they are people who know how to fix things. These are the everyday heroes that keep our society running. And yes, when there's an emergency, they're the first ones there and they're running toward danger and they're helping out the rest of us and helping get the power lines back up. Um, You know, our country is full of those kinds of people, and uh, when I start to feel a little discouraged, I find that to be a very, um, you know, uplifting thought. Our country is full of really skilled people, and in this case, I'm talking mostly guys who know how to get shit done and who can be relied on um, when the chips are down, and that's 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 good to remember.
0: Yeah, it is. It's very heartening. And I don't think enough of those folks uh, get the uh, credit that they deserve, um, especially under, you know, I, I wouldn't want to just say the COVID regime, but there's that accelerated it. But there, there seems to be, uh, especially across the West, this weird bifurcation of society, which is occurring. Uh, I'm, I'm not 100% sure whether it's completely driven by the media or the academy, the government social trends you know there's a dissident writer here in the united states named curtis yarvin who sort of calls the confluence of all those institutions he calls it the cathedral and you know the the because of the sort of focus on identitarian politics within that milieu you know they they sort of view um working class dudes you know as some kind of reactionary element that's getting in their way to you know the full takeover of society and the dawning of utopia or some garbage and um you know and then you get um prime minister trudeau's reaction to the freedom convoy and to anybody who is skeptical of his rule um and there's this kind of like you know, the, the problem is much deeper than Trudeau. It's like this wider sort of rule by technocrats, um, the the sort of managerial elite. There's a writer here in the United States named Michael Lind, who sp- spoke about this at length. Um, you know, the, the, there's these. The, the, it's not like we. It's not like the oligarchs and you know the super rich have all gone away, but there's this new case of people sort of directly below them that kind of manage everything for the people further up and the, and the, and the managers have gotten way out of control and sniff their own farts too much and believe that they have like the divine right to sort of tell everybody else what to do and how to live yes. and, they get, and they get things wrong a lot. Yes. Um. And so maybe, maybe you could tell us like a little bit more about your uh, journalistic journey. And I think, you know, I was browsing through some of your older stuff, And I think you've been coming into contact with these manager folks for a long time. (laughs)
1: <laughs> well you know um, so I I, I um, finished my degree at the University of Toronto and I had a you know I had a, English was one of my majors and and then I just started writing opinion pieces and sending them into newspapers and and I had the audacity um, I'm not sure how, why um, to send um, a letter to the editor of the um, then the editor of the Toronto Star and um, and say i think you should give me a a, a regular column
0: and-, <laughs> <Bold move. laughs>
1: and you know i had by then had a, a couple of op-eds published in the toronto star and you know i include anyway so so to 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 his credit john hondrick invited me in for a meeting and said um, you know to so tell me a little bit more about why you think i should give you a column and then he did give me a column um, so, um, so here I was, um, you know, um, um, late twenties, a nobody from northern Ontario with no contacts and no political connections whatsoever, and I suddenly was writing a, a column every second week on the opinion page in the Toronto Star, which was, you know, the the uh, largest circulation newspaper in Canada, and so that that was that was that was pretty awesome. Um, you know, the uh, the pay was two hundred dollars a column, and and all your expenses came out of that. So it wasn't um, it wasn't um, handsomely paid, but it was it was a place to start, and it, and the exposure was amazing, um, and so that's. Um, there was afterwards um, a few months later, there was a, a Toronto star strike and they uh, promoted me to a weekly column because they needed content because their regular writers were out on the picket line. And, um, and Ooh,
0: strike breakers. Scab.
1: Yes. Yes, yes, <laughs> that's right. I actually had a call from someone in the union. Now you have to understand in journalism that there are staffers and they look down on everyone else. You are basically a bug. If you were a freelancer, um, um, so it was very interesting to have this staffer with all kinds of uh, job security and, and benefits and pension and and you know a, a, a paycheck um, every week tell me that I was I was um, you know interfering with um, with with their uh, with you know anyway so I ignored them um, so um, as a uh, you know I was rewarded I, I had this weekly column but I was always t- um, you know taking the contrarian point of view. Um, because the, 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 the point of view that we've heard a million times is boring and I don't want (laughs) to be a boring journalist. I want to learn something and I want, when, if I'm writing something, I want to help people see something, um, that they didn't know about. Right. Um, so, um, so, you know, um, um, and because of that work, I, I you know, was uh, Alan Boravoy, who's the late um, founder of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. He uh, invited me to lunch a couple times. He was um, he was a very sweet man who kind of was a bit of a mentor um, because he was just impressed that I was willing to say, um, you know, things about feminism, to criticize feminism, for example. And, and guys are, that's very tricky ground for guys. So it's always great if you can find a woman who who's prepared to do that so um so you know um, then I became involved in the Civil Civil Liberties Association and I was you know part of that for a number of years so I was on the board and um you know went to some meetings and stuff so um so and and you know as a journalist I believe in free speech and there's I wouldn't have a job if there wasn't free speech you have to be able to to express yourself freely Um, so it just seems like a no-brainer to me so so to see journalists write now acting like the hall monitors who are squealing on people and trying to shut people down like it's the opposite of what uh, you know journalism is supposed to be so that's very very distressing for me so you know um, there were a number of years I you know I'm at the very end of the baby boomer generation so all those union jobs in journalism got taken by all that big bulge in front of me. So there have never been many jobs in journalism during my entire lifetime. So I was a freelancer for most of it, um, have been, um, you know, by necessity. But, I, you know, I did magazine work. I, I pitched stories, you know, research-intensive investigative stories to um, to Toronto Life, um, you know, and um, you know, my first Toronto Life Story, we got a libel chill letter. It was written about a, um, a pathologist who was doing autopsies for the Ontario government, testifying in criminal trials. And I found out um, that he had failed his pathology exam more than once. But here he was testifying in trials where people were going to go to prison if they were convicted. So um, I tried to interview him. And instead, his lawyer sent us a letter saying, if you publish the story, we're going to sue you. And, you know, we were very, very careful that we had we could prove everything that we said in that piece. And, we, it, you know, I remember vividly this meeting. This is my first magazine piece for and there's, there's the editor, there's the libel lawyer, there's the magazine fact checker, and we are going through every sentence in my story to make sure that we can back this up. So that was a really great experience for my first magazine piece because it sort of set the standard of, of you know, this is how you do um, solid, careful journalism. So, um, so you know, I, I worked for you know. So always, I would pitch stories, and um, you know, I did some work for Chatelaine, and I did so, um, some of my stories got reprinted by Reader's Digest. So, so you know, I'm familiar with the the magazine world, familiar with the newspapers. I was doing freelance work for the Globe and Mail, and uh, on a regular basis, and um, and other places. You know, the the Montreal Gazette. Um, And then the National Post happened. So um, the National Post at the beginning was a dream. It was a dream because the whole purpose of the National Post was to say things that no other newspaper would say in the country. And to be irreverent and to be politically incorrect and to sort of, you know, poke people that the people are very satisfied about their, uh, you know, about their view of the world to sort of poke them and challenge them a little. And it was a very fun place at the beginning. And I think I got hired in May and the paper launched at the end of October. So um, it was, uh, you know, I had a lot of opportunity to do some, some in depth research before we, we, we actually launched. And, um, and it was amazing. And, you know, um, Conrad Black did something Amazing when he started that newspaper, and unfortunately that was twenty-five-ish years ago. And you know, um, I I was there for three years on staff, so I had the staff experience for three years at the National Post. And then there was, Conrad was losing so much money every month; he had to sell it to Ken West. And a week after Ken West took over that newspaper, 130 of us got pink slips like immediately. And I was out of there, so uh, with a lot of other people who had much more stellar careers than I did by that point. And it was, it was, you know, I think it was the beginning of the National Post turning into um, another, you know, just the same kind of newspaper. You know, it's very hard um, now. Um, you know, there's a few people writing um, um, in the Post, so, but but it's become kind of
0: it's another, it's just it's just another organ of Cathedral Nord right um that's right that's right so so
1: i've been uh, on
0: my own little i don't know i i I, i'm not a journalist i i write opinion pieces i do commentary on the trucking business um i'm going to be doing some more well-researched deeper stuff here in the future with a couple of projects i'm secretly working on but that's for another time one of the things about you know um One of the things right now that's really annoying the crap out of me about the sort of establishment media back in Canada, I mean, over and above how they completely fell in line with Trudeau. They propagated the mass hysteria and uh, ginned up moral panic scapegoating campaign against anybody that dissented against the COVID regime, for which I think, you know, accountability must come hard and swift, although that might never happen. Right now there's this situation in Alberta with these four guys that got picked up at the Coots border crossing. And when you look at the facts of this case, the circumstances under which these guys continue to be held without bail and on the flimsiest evidence imaginable. And it's really looking like the RCMP and the government are in cahoots. And, the, the, ju- the judiciary in Alberta is, like, out to lunch with how they've handled this, as well as the prosecution. And nobody in Canada is talking about it at all. And I wrote this op-ed in the Newsweek a few weeks ago about this. Yes. yes. Yeah. everybody had stopped talking about them for months. Yes. the exception of a couple of, like, you know, online internet people. And then all of a sudden, Rebel News writes an article. Uh, True North Center writes an article. Now, they're not part of the establishment. They're sort of like outside sort of center right. Um, You know, some people might dismiss them as fringe, but whatever. They're doing what they do. Ezra Levant does what he does. But it was just interesting to me how this situation is gross. Yes. Okay? And you will remember... The name Omar Cotter. Yes. So Mr. Cotter uh, got picked up, sent to Afghanistan by his dad, gets involved with this firefight with the Americans. He's accused of murdering one of their medics, goes to Gitmo, spends, what, eight, ten years at Guantanamo Bay, and everybody and their brother was constantly attacking Stephen Harper for not doing enough to get him back out of Guantanamo Bay. He eventually comes back. Then he sues the government. Trudeau cuts him a check for $10.5 million. And like everybody and their brother knew the entire situation with Omar Cotter inside out and backwards. It was in the media constantly here. We have these four guys who got picked up in coots. They've been in jail now for like almost 550 days. know. yeah. Um, uh, denied me- uh, basic net- medical treatment kept in gang units. When they get brought to Lethbridge for, you know, pre-trial hearings are kept in solitary confinement. They're just being treated like dog shit. And thus far the government's evidence is two things. The unrecorded verbal testimony of two undercover RCMP officers who were both brought in from elsewhere and, uh, very young and attractive females, no recording devices. Wow. And, and a photo which was staged by the RCMP the very night before the invocation of the Emergencies Act showing a, ooh, a bunch of scary guns. And when you look at them, I've seen t- I've, I've, I've seen expert witness um, information about all of those weapons. None of them are illegal. And nobody knows the circumstances how they all ended up there. And, you know, what a very interesting photograph. You know, there's a a former uh, private investigator, former police officer named Donald Best, who sort of picked apart the whole thing. And that was used as justification for the Emergencies Act. And when you look at the Public Order Emergency Commission ruling from Justice Rouleau, you know, he sort of said he reluctantly agreed that Trudeau was right to invoke it based on that photo and based on what he'd heard about the guys from Coots. But it's quite likely that all of it's lies when you actually look at what's going on here. And we have this situation where four regular working-class Canadian men have been separated from their families, uh, treated in like Gitmo-like conditions, and nobody in the mainstream media is talking about it. Some people say, well, there's a publication ban. The publication ban is very specific about very specific um, information going on inside the case. But you can talk about the case. You can talk about the circumstances around it. You can ask questions about why these men are being treated this way. You can ask why they've been denied bail. You can ask about all this stuff and talk about it. That's perfectly fine. And none of them are doing it. Do you have some theory as to why this is that might be different
1: from mine? Well, um, you know, it's, it's journalists not doing their job. And also, you know, there was a time when I would have told you, of course, advertisers don't interfere. Um, You know, I can write whatever I want. When I go pitch a story to an editor, I have never in my in my entire career been told, oh, no, you can't do that because an advertiser isn't going to like it. It never happened to me. Uh, Maybe I was lucky, but since um, you know more recently I have been told oh you can write an op-ed about this report that you wrote for a UK pub- uh, um, organization but but you can't talk about this and you can't talk about this and don't say that because our advertisers won't like it. So um, so I have been told that now and I've been told that in writing. Um, by uh, by a Canadian newspaper. And, and part of it is that Canadian newspapers are dying. You know, back in back when the National Post was launched uh, 25 years ago, Nat, um, Canadian newspapers were struggling with this incredible cash ectomy. Canadian newspapers used to make their money from classified ads, and then Craigslist came along, um, and all those ads went online, and suddenly there that 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 huge revenue source just disappeared for newspapers. So so newspapers have been trying now for a couple decades to figure out what's going on, and it hasn't made them. Um, better, um, better at covering the news. It's made them more desperate. And these days they're, um, they're you know, eager for clicks. And, and how they get clicks is by, um, you know, feeding your anxiety and, and, and getting you worked up or, you know, the ordinary reader online. Um, and, you know, these people have all decided that the convoy was evil. Um, and they never, and they decided that before they even talked to anyone in the convoy, and that is the dominant narrative. Of all of our media, and it's it it is disappointing and it is disgusting, but that's where we are. So the media isn't going to touch the Coots boys with a poll. and and in some ways it's not any different. So one of my big big um, you know stories that I'm very proud of was very early when I was part of the uh, the the Toronto Star um, experience. Um, I covered the Guy Paul Moran wrongful conviction and um, he had been convicted even though the police had planted evidence, even though the police had kept dual notebooks and, you know, showed one, one, one version to the court and the end, but actually were using a different version. They were they, He was convicted even though the pathologist had missed numerous injuries on the body of the victim. Um, you know, it made no sense. All of this came out in the trial, and yet the, the jury convicted him anyway. And at that point... The door closed. The media, the, in general, did not want to hear any more about Guy Paul Morin. He was a he was a convicted child rapist and murderer, and he belongs in prison. And that was the end of it. And you know, for a period of time. I was one of the only voices in the whole country, and this was before the internet, saying, um, wait a minute here, wait a minute, what what about this? What about this? I think overall I re- ended up writing 18 columns for the Toronto Star about his wrongful conviction before he was it was finally overturned. And you know, I can remember my editor saying, Donna, are you sure about this? Really? Are you really sure about this? Because we're we're going out on a limb here. We're doing something the rest of the media is not doing. Are you really sure and um you know obviously um uh, i i was certain and, and and in time i i my analysis proved to be correct so the media is a pack animal they're a herd animal and they've been that way for a long time
0: they're they're a herd animal leading around a much larger herd by the nose unfortunately yes yes but then we have people like yourself and um, so you, 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 you've seen this, you know, disgusting display of um, ignorance and propagation of fear against the Freedom Convoy. And you decide that you want to find out more about the people who are involved. How long have you been working on this little project of yours now?
1: well for more than a year so i i'm also a photographer and so when the freedom convoy happened i was watching it online they went to ottawa and and i you know i said to my husband i have to go i have to take pictures this is historic this is a, his, a historic moment for canada i have to go take pictures and so i went to ottawa for a full week the second week and all i did was take pictures and of course i talked to people and got to you know got to know some people and got some phone numbers because i was, I was was texting some of the truckers photos that I had taken of them. But my intention had not been to write a book at that point. And I have written a few books, but I had not intended to write a book. Um, And it was only afterwards, a few months later, after the convoy, and every time it was mentioned in the media, it was this this mirage, this this false picture of what had happened. And and there is this incredible divide now in our society between the folks who went to Ottawa and saw with their own eyes and the people who didn't, because the, anyone who went to Ottawa, including the friend who accompanied me, who wasn't really political, it was a red pill experience for her. And now she just says, the media lies, because we would be out there all day, walking around. It's joy, it's, it's it's um, you know, Um, peace it's love people are hugging everyone's happy and after two years of COVID we really needed that and we would have this experience all day and we go around and we check in with with folks and how are you doing and and there's people giving free food and then we go back to the hotel room and you turned on the news and my friend would say that's exactly opposite on the news to what we've just experienced all day, and so for her now, she just she her reflexive, her reflexive uh, position is the news is bullshit. Right. Um, well, you know,
0: I I I want to make a comment here just because I know I think you and I both know this, but other people d- might not. Um, on, on this point about the media basically lying and inverting reality with the freedom convoy as it was happening. A decision made by the organizers in Ottawa, um, you know, uh, Tamara Leach, BJ Dichter, Tom Morazzo, all these characters, um, was to bar certain members of the mainstream media from their press releases after a little while when. For press conferences, you mean? Yes, press conferences, yeah. Yep. Yep. And um, because they just saw that no matter what they said, they were being attacked, anyways. But I have to wonder, like, I, I don't want to question them. I mean, whatever, it's a moot point now. But there were people who were repeating things that were blatantly false and that were addressed at press conferences. But because the press conferences only sort of talked to independent media and, you know, people online, stuff like, you know, the, this memorandum of understanding, which was baloney, and they dismissed right away. Um, you know, they distanced themselves from this Pat King character because some of the sort of loony things he was saying, but people would keep bringing that up all the time. Well, what about this guy? Well, what about this? Well, what about this? But they had no clue that like that was all in the past and not really part of what they were doing, you right. know, amongst other things. And then, you know, and, and, and that and that inversion of reality, I think, continued straight through to the Public Order Emergency Commission. You know, I watched quite a bit of it. I watched a lot of the testimony. I read a lot of it after the fact. Um, it's all still available on that website. Like all the documentation is there for anybody that wants to see it. And things like, you know, this Nazi flag waving guy, um, CSIS was asked point blank, you know, hey, do you know who this clown is? And their answer was, we can neither confirm nor deny his identity because that's a national security issue. Well, That's fed speak for one of two possibilities. The guy was a plant or they actually don't know who he is, which means CSIS are a bunch of clowns that aren't actually doing their jobs. Right. (laughs) So, you know, which one is it? And like the mainstream media didn't bother asking that question or pursuing it any further because it's too easy in a, in a market that demands that we have evidence of all these Nazis, that are, you know, functions of our imagination implanted into us by the media, we have to have one, even if it's fake, right? Yes. So, like, how all of this stuff has functioned and played out is just kind of amazing to me.
1: Yes, and 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 it's been shocking to me. And you know, I I think I've understood for a long time that um, the media, as I say, are they're they're pack animals. I was never I was always the lone wolf that was out of the pack, and so you know, um, I I was never um, very popular with my uh, my um, colleagues, and I'm I'm used to that, and I'm okay with that, and that's been the case for for decades. But but even though I've never had rose-tinted glasses about journalism because of my direct experience, I am shocked at how profound the the disconnect is from reality is and as you said it's the exact opposite anything that you saw in the media or 98% of what you saw in the media about the convoy if you invert it if you think the exact opposite is true that is far closer to reality so um you know journalists somehow now think that it's their job to manage the news to manage what you see and to interpret what you see and like who appointed you um you know to be to make be making these decisions it's really it's really distressing so so yes we have we have journalists and and it's the first time ottawa was the first time i saw ordinary people basically giving the finger to the mainstream media. And um, that was, that was a bit of, um, of like, um, you know, a glass of cold water being thrown on you because I've, I've you know, I've never seen that before where people would just. Um, well One you of, know- what
0: of, what of your recent Substack pieces, which is a uh, documentation of your recent road trip to Nova Scotia, as well as all of your interviews, you, you discuss uh, a trucker who was in Ottawa that was approached by Some media, I can't remember who And he told them to talk to his steering wheel Like just talk to that tire right there Because I'm not talking to you
1: that's right so this this trucker is amazing he came with this great big rig and he's he's a he's a truck he's a truck fanatic he collects old trucks but he's actually a commercial fisherman from nova scotia but you know there's not a lot for commercial fishermen or farmers to do in the middle of winter so there were lots of lots of people who weren't technically um truckers some some of them behind the wheel of some of those big rigs and this guy's sitting there and cbc comes and says can we do an interview with you and he says, yeah, you can interview that front tire. I'm not talking to you. You, 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 you lie. Oh, what do we lie about? You lie about everything all the time. I wouldn't turn your channel on. Never. And um, that is very new. That is, that is something new. And I think people have maybe thought about it privately, but to see lots of people expressing that, um, that's that's remarkable and and it's unfortunate because it would be you, because people whenever anything happens say this uh, recent fire in Hawaii there are all kinds of um of theories as to what went on and it would be useful for our society to have responsible reporting that could sort of point you in the direction of, well, this is likely what happened. But when the journalists all have an agenda and the agenda is not informing the public, the agenda is, you know, managing the news and managing what people think about, about, uh, you know, politics generally, um, we, we're left with who do we trust? What do we know? How do we know what's true? Right. And that's, that's not a good place to be. No, it's
0: not. And I want to give you another example of how that plays out in um practical reality outside of canada so during the freedom convoy there wasn't a whole lot of international journalists in ottawa um because of covid everybody was at home and like it was really hard to travel yes so um more than ever i mean the american media sort of kind of ignores canada unless there's something important happening and then they kind of give us a cursory sort of look but they typically depend, especially the sort of establishment media in the US, depend on establishment media in Canada for all of their news. Yep. And people down here had like no clue what was going on about Freedom Convoy. When I came home from it, there was certain people that like paid attention to like alternative stuff. And they're like, Oh yeah, man, it's about time somebody stood up to this crap. And I've seen more Cana- I saw more Canadian flags in February 2022 in the United States than I've ever seen before. Yes. But you know, if, if you listened to NPR or the Daily Beast or the Washington Post or anything, they were basically repeating verbatim what they were being told by CBC, CTV and Global, right? So uh, this th- this this um th- this reality inversion ends up being how people view Canada from outside of Canada, right? That's- and unless you know, you know, so it kind of like it makes us look stupid, And I saw the same thing happening with all of the forest fires, right? So, like, I live in upstate New York. Um, A lot of my wife's friends live in New York City. There was this famous picture of, like, the sort of red haze above New York, above the Manhattan skyline. And, like, there was all these uh, warnings here. And in the little town I live, like, everybody was wearing masks. Well, not everybody, but a lot of people were wearing masks again. You know, the haze was a pretty good excuse to put your face muzzle back on. But anyway... In the media here, it was just climate change. Nobody in the United States knew that it was arson, that like many, many fires were caused by arson, that dozens of people had been arrested. Nobody here knew that. And I would get into conversations with people about it. And I'd say, yeah, all these people got arrested for arson in BC and Alberta and Nova Scotia. And they're like, oh, really? Because the American media was just like, yep, Justin Trudeau says climate change, uh, bad weather, unseasonably hot. When in fact in Quebec it was actually unseasonably cool and it had rained a lot, and we we're not quite sure how a lot of these things started. And just no, no, no clue, none whatsoever about the arson that went on with this.
1: That's right. just,
0: and, and and again, this points to the management of information, not the reporting of it, but the management of perception. And something else that like I find really interesting is I grew up in the nineties. Uh, early 2000s, we had the Iraq War, War on Terror, uh, the second you know, Bush Jr. Uh, administration, and all kinds of propaganda supporting these various uh, War on Terror uh, operations in Iraq and Afghanistan and all that. And everybody I knew who was kind of either on the left or libertarian or you know paying attention was like, yep, this is all propaganda. We're being lied to. The New York Times is lying. Fox News is lying. Everybody's lying. And we need to be skeptical about things. Fast forward 20 years, all of those same people that I used to be very good friends with, members of my own family, everyone who was against the wars are now like all of their skepticism is out the window when it comes to other issues or if like a particular administration is in charge, right? Like different rules for different groups of things, even though the function of state the function of government and the function of corporations remains the same. Right. Yes. yes. And that's, that's bad. That's really, really bad that these people are continue are doing this.
1: Yes. And the left has abandoned, um, the working class, you know, and, um, the, uh, Academics have abandoned the working class, not that they were big, big proponents, but at least they believed in things like the right to work and and free speech. And now it's just its identity politics has has, you know, become their their their. their guiding uh, principles. So, um, you know, one of the things that I feel quite bitter about is, you know, being from Sudbury, NDP unions, all of that. Well, the the one time in Canada, in how many decades that the working class stood up and said enough is enough, and went to Ottawa in the middle of winter in huge trucks and took a stand. Where? What did the NDP do? Betrayed them attacked them, lied about them, and not only federally at the time, but just recently in British Columbia, the NDP government felt it was necessary more than a year later to once again condemn condemn the freedom convoy. Like, you are supposed to be standing up for the working class. This was the working class, Um, you know, um, saying enough, enough of this bullshit. so it's, yes, I feel profoundly betrayed by, by the left. I feel betrayed by, by friends who I thought... Um, th- Um, you know valued free speech and suddenly they don't anymore. Um, You know my husband and I met in the Toronto peace movement in the early 1980s you know we our social life for a number of years was a whole bunch of leftists going to all the leftist demonstrations Um, and um, and it's like okay I thought there were principles here but those principles have disappeared and now you know, um, yeah, you you don't care about working people Uh, anymore.
0: There's a few of them who still kind of wear that label that are honest lefties, I guess. Um, I've been interviewed by a number of them. Um, During my participation, very short as it was, in Freedom Convoy, I came home to the U.S. and started writing about it. And I had put up all these videos on Twitter and a few people noticed me. And in some quarters of like the sort of working class or maybe Marxist analysis left i guess they retained some skepticism and wanted to find out from people what was actually going on so i appeared there's a young woman she's actually from sudbury too her name's ashley frawley she's a sociology professor and lecturer at a university in wales now okay. um, she's she's half Ojibwe and mm-hmm. you know um also you know a very uh, wears it proudly on her sleeve that she considers herself a marxist She had me on her podcast, and we talked about this for an hour, and I sort of went through all of the critiques coming from the likes of the NDP and various members of the media that were wrong and assumptions they made about the truckers that were wrong or incorrect or misinformed. And then this other uh, show in the UK, also hosted by a Marxist, had me on, and another... uh, I've spoken to a number of people who might be dismissed as quote unquote the far left, but they were actually honest brokers and legitimately skeptical, but like they're not getting into the, you know, they're not going to write for the Toronto star.
1: No they'll, never, no, they'll
0: never even be mentioned. And then, you know, the other people that spoke to me quite a bit were sort of American libertarians. Yes. Um, people that like, you know, hate the Republicans and the Democrats with equal measure. And, anti-war people um, that like, you know, they were solid. They've always been against the wars. They've always remained skeptical of the government. That's sort of part of their MO. They wanted to speak to me, but everybody else, forget it. And something that happened to me, um, I wrote this article for Newsweek about Freedom Convoy and uh, a very um, controversial figure at Fox News, this woman named Laura Ingraham, Mm -hmm. asked me to be on her show. So I'm like, all right. You know, I know people hate her guts and I know people hate Fox, but you know, nobody else is asking to talk to me, um, in the mainstream quote unquote. So I go on her show. It's all about a five minute segment. She did most of the speaking within 36 hours of that appearance. My Twitter account got suspended. And And then one of my oldest best friends in Canada, um, A woman who was at my fifth birthday party, came to my wedding, longest, Mm -hmm. oldest friend in the world, texts me and says, I don't know who you are anymore and don't ever talk to me again.
1: I'm so sorry. No, no, no question.
0: No discussion. Just you are with these fascists in Ottawa and then you went on a fascist TV show in America. Get lost. No discussion of the issues. No, no, no discourse. No back and forth. Just get lost. Yeah. And uh, some of my family from Sudbury haven't heard from them in two years. They haven't talked to my dad. They haven't talked to my sister. Um, Just like, you know, my dad's a trucker. I'm a trucker. My uncles were truckers. We're the trucker side of the family. And now uh, we might as well not exist.
1: And you would think that you know they would be interested in your point of view about it. They didn't ha- don't have to agree, but you're the you're you know you're you're from that world. You have insights that other people don't have. You would think that you they would want to have conversations with you about it.
0: I mean, I went to Ottawa and they didn't. So
1: that's right. That's right. <laughs> yes. yes. Um, yes, um, you know, the. Um, I think we were going there in politically before this polarized um, environment, but uh, COVID just sort of ramped it up, amped it up, this idea that if you don't agree with someone, then you should just cut them off and never speak to them. Again, it's kind of almost the divorce mentality, you know, that, that society used to say, well, divorce isn't good and it's really difficult for the children. And so if you must divorce, you should behave v- you know, circumspectly, that used to be the model. And now it's like, oh, the the, the parents are just going at each other. And, and it's horrible. And it's like, you know, I'm going to cut you off. And, and, you know, that that mentality of those really vicious divorces that have kind of come to be seen as normal. um, It's almost like that, um, has 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 spread into into our common culture now, where you don't talk to people. You know, one of one Alan Borovoy, who was the head of the Civil Liberties Association, he used to delight every Saturday to go and have brunch with um, with George Jonas because they were politically at opposite ends and but they loved each other and they debated and and they had a culture where where debate and even even teasing each other and insulting each other was 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 healthy and it was great and you know that generation's ethos is gone you know oh i'm never going to speak to you again because you did one thing that i disagree with pardon me that's not how how society can can function in one
0: of your one of your Substack stories, I believe you found similar stories to mine of people's families who got fractured and who have succumbed to, as you call it, this inability to talk to each other anymore, the refusal to discuss or debate. Um, how do you like? Did do, do you get us like? Was that
1: something common as you've been speaking with all these truckers over the last year? Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, someone that I've interviewed and I haven't actually published. Their interview quite yet. Um, they say to me, you know, everyone brought their sadness to Ottawa, their aches to Ottawa, because during COVID, there were all of this. There was all of this conflict. There was first of all conflict about should we actually be getting together for the holidays? Is going to be dangerous or not? And then there was conflict about masking. And then of course there was horrendous conflict over the vaccines. So every family has almost every family has been touched by this and fractured and wounded by this and then it happened in church groups you know churches split the ones who people who thought we should be listening to the government and the people who said we need our religious communities more than ever right now this is a crisis this is exactly the time when we need to gather and support each other so the churches split community groups split I've heard about people who you know were part of a curling club for 25 years, but they wouldn't get back. And the club said, don't come back. We never want to see you again. Small town, Ontario. Yeah, this is going on. So there were all of these Um, there's all of this pain and all of this hurt and people went to Ottawa and they took that with them and and then they found like-minded individuals and that was why there was so much joy, that was why grown men who didn't know each other were just hugging each other spontaneously and someone said to me that Ottawa was a place where you could go fuel up on happiness after two years of no happiness right? Oh wow I think yes. And and this is one of the things. Society has been through all of this. And there is no acknowledgement by the media or by our leaders, our politicians, that any of that happened. You know, there is no... Come on, now it's a time to really put all of this aside and and embrace each other and 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 re knit our society. Where is that discussion? Where is that commentary? It's like, you know, um our, our prime minister is just prancing around as if nothing has happened, as if none of this profound, you know, um pain took place. He just it's not on his radar.
0: Yeah, um, I'm I You know, know, whenever elections come up and I, I hear there's supposed to be rumors of a fall election in Canada, I don't know. I can't stand listening to any of these people. But, you know, hey, what are your issues? What do you want to vote on? What's important to you? My number one issue now, and it will be till the end of time until they actually do it, is accountability for what happened under the COVID regime. I am not voting for, nor talking to, nor giving an ounce of energy to any politician whose number one priority isn't star chambers, commissions, firing squads, whatever you want to call it. I want all of the people responsible for this held to account, be they government, bureaucrats, members of the media, community leaders. I don't care. If you played a role in the bifurcation of our society, you must be held to account and whatever that punishment is like, banning from whoever holding a position of power official censure whatever however that cracks out that must happen if and that that goes for the united states that goes for everywhere i don't care unless i hear that from you you don't exist and the political system is basically it's just dead to me because that's the most incredible crazy thing that's happened in my adult life and that's saying something because we've had the 2008 financial crisis All these goddamn wars, you know, all the other various crimes of government, unless and until we get some accountability for this, I don't want to know.
1: Yeah, I get it. I get it. Um, exactly. And, you know, and, and one of the things we haven't even mentioned, but, it, you know, I put myself through university working as a clerk in, in Toronto hospitals. Okay, so I could type. So I was in emergency, I was in the admitting department, I was in the x-ray department, just taking people's information, getting their medical information, their address, blah, blah, blah. But I, I work shift work, I put myself through school, I'm very familiar and comfortable with hospitals because I worked in those. And now COVID has made me afraid of our medical system because what I learned during COVID is that my doctor has to tell me what the government thinks, not what her real opinion is about Uh, About medical issues. She is not at liberty to write me a vaccine exemption um, to prescribe. She is not at liberty to do those things because the government has told her she can't. That's not medicine. That is not medicine. That's politics. That is. And now I'm terrified um, to have anything to do with the medical profession. And, you know, um, I I am going to stay away from doctors. I am going to stay away from hospitals as much as I possibly can, because now I feel that they, you know, there's been trust has been broken. You are not going to behave ethically according to your own ethics that are published and that have been supposedly in play for decades. You're going to do what the government says, because otherwise you're going to lose your license what what how did we get here and why are we not talking about that right? well
0: uh, the, the why are we not talking about it brings up another point and you still living in canada and being a journalist prime minister trudeau and his liberal party with support from the ndp have been very big on imposing further controls on what we see or, see hear think or say via all of these censorship bills c11 c18 um, you know, they're basically trying to control the internet. They're trying to shake down the tech companies to shovel more money at all of these failing legacy media outlets. And then they're calling it, well, it's important for Canadian culture and Canadian identity. Um, meanwhile, you know, a couple of years ago, Trudeau said Canada is a post-national country who doesn't really have an identity. So like people used to accuse Jean Chrétien talking out of both sides of a mouth that only worked on one side. I think Trudeau's taken that and mastered it, but um, what do you think about all of these bills, the politics behind them,
1: and like where, where do you see this going? Well, they're horrible bills, you know, and yes, in every uh, conceivable way, the, the government is trying to control mis- um, control information, which they of course call m- misinformation, anything they don't happen to agree with at the moment. But government is this great big octopus. And one, you know, one part of government is saying something and the other part is saying something totally different. So, you know, and, and much of our misinformation in the last two years has come from government sources. So the idea that government somehow thinks that they are are on a pedestal and they can decide what's true and what's false is obviously ridiculous. And and any of these um, bills that are being put through by the Trudeau government should you know they belong in the trash can and they're very dangerous. I am an optimist, however, and I do believe that people will find ways to work around those bills and they will whether it's they get VPNs or you know what they 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 spend a lot more time on Telegram. You know people are going to. F- People, there are a lot of people now who are awake, um, who have seen what happened through COVID, and are are there. We, you can't go back once you've seen some of these things. Mm-hmm. So I, I think um, that people are, um, I, yeah, I, I think you know, even in the Soviet Union, when when information was so tightly controlled, people found ways um, to communicate with each other, and. Um, and so, you know, I think we will be creative and, and and ingenious, and we'll we'll figure out ways to circumvent all of this this government um, control. But it's going to be difficult, and and we're actually going to have to take it seriously because this is if if this is a spiritual war at the very least. We are in at war with our government, which hates us, be regulating every single part of our lives. How did we get here? This is not this is not good. This is not healthy. No,
0: I imagine in your travels and interviewing all of the truckers for your book, you've had this same exchange with many people. What was the sort of, you know, diversity of opinion or thoughts on what's gone on now um, as you're speaking to these folks? Like, do you, do you feel like you keep hearing the same things or are there folks with different takes?
1: There are large themes that are the same. So everyone will tell you and all the truckers will tell you about all the feedback they got from the public, the cards, the letters, the cash, the gift cards. You know, I meet with a trucker in a in a in a um, in a Tim's in New Brunswick. And he's brought along this box of all of these notes and cards and thank you notes. You know, I I, I go to a guy's place in Nova Scotia in, in a small town and he's got a box of all of these to show me. You know, the you know, so there are the and and just the generosity of people feeding them. You know, there were there were Ottawa residents and people who lived within dri- easy driving distance of Ottawa who went in. And fed the same group of truckers every night. You know, they picked a couple people, and they were there every night. They were bringing them something. Um, they were bringing them food. Sometimes they were bringing them a joint along with their food.
0: <laughs>
1: you know, so, so people did this. Ordinary people just did this. It was kind of like a big church picnic with everyone just coming and 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 bringing things. Um, so there are these 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 wonderful themes about the generosity and about the, the love uh, and the gratitude um, from, from from um, you know, other Canadians. That, um, and then there are some things that are interesting because some truckers got their bank accounts frozen and, and many did not. And it seems totally random. So a couple people, uh, so one guy that I know who was there, he was on Wellington. He wasn't even a trucker. He went in his van. He was an aircraft mechanic. And he was there because he had been forced to, to take a vax in order to keep his job. At first he said no, and him and his wife lost their jobs on the same day, and they they, they, they held out for a month. And then they thought, we're gonna lose everything we've spent our entire life working for. Jesus. So, so, you know, that's why that guy was there. He was there in a van, a van that he never uses in the winter, he thought he was going for the weekend, three weeks later he's there, but on the Thursday, before things got really ugly on the Friday, he said, I gotta go home and talk to my boss. I haven't been at work for three weeks and you know, I gotta go, I'm gonna come back for the weekend, but I gotta go. So him and his van that have been on Wellington, they leave on Thursday. His bank account still got frozen on Friday. And he spends hours on the phone with his banks, two of them um, saying, so what's the process? When am I gonna get access to my own money? No one can tell him anything. No one can tell him anything. So that poor guy went through Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Monday was a holiday in Ontario. It was family day. He went through four days before his bank account was, was finally unfrozen on the Tuesday. And no one could tell him anything in between. And if he hadn't had friends coming and saying, here, buddy, here's a $1,000 to get you through, Um, you know, he couldn't even put gas in his car. So that poor guy had his bank account frozen. And, you know, like many of us, his name is on a couple of his parents' bank accounts in case they become incapacitated. He can still pay their rent and stuff. He has access to their bank accounts. So all of those bank accounts, when they went online, were frozen, including his parents. They all said zero. They said zero when you went online. So this poor guy has, has that experience. And then there are other people who were in Ottawa the whole time, truckers, big truck, they never had their bank accounts frozen. So different experiences. So one of the things that's interesting about this project where I'm recording all of these people's uh, stories is that even the truckers don't know what happened to some of the other truckers, right? So I had a guy who I, I wrote about recently who was in Ottawa for two weeks. He's sleeping in his bunk in his truck and then he, he has an exhaust problem and he gets carbon monoxide poisoning, you know. So for the last week, he's out of it. And then he misses a couple months of work after that. That's a story most people, even who were at the Como, I don't know. They don't know that. So there were different experiences, different parts of, of where the trucks were had very different experiences. There was a lot more joy and happiness up on Wellington than there was down on the, the uh, John a, Sir John A. McDonald Parkway. They were sort of orphaned down there. They weren't getting as much public. Um, there was still a lot of people bringing food. There was a, an incredible family from Southern Ontario who went down and, and cooked on an outdoor cook stove for three weeks for that group of truckers. But the the, um, you know, the vibe wasn't as happy down there. It was, you know, so different people, depending on where you were, um, had 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 different perspectives. But, um, you know, when when it was proposed by the government, we're going to start freezing bank accounts. Some people were absolutely defiant and just, yeah, freeze my bank account. Go ahead. Uh, You know, do it. I don't believe it for a minute. Um, You know, they're very defiant. And other people were really freaked out. So I interviewed a couple who were provided a hub for truckers about 20 minutes outside of Parliament Hill on a farm. The city of Ottawa contacted them and said, could we use your farm as overflow? If some of the truckers want to go out for a few days and just have some quiet, could we use your farm? So they were helping the city of Ottawa and yet when the, the started they started talking about freezing bank accounts, this couple got really, really very concerned. And so the woman's response was to pay all her utility bills for a year in advance. Oh wow. Yeah, so get ready get money out of my account, use it for something that's going to be useful. That's going to, you know, cause if I can't pay my bills for a while, I, you know, so.
0: Yeah. Well, um, people had to make these choices. So one of my trucker friends who actually had his truck there, right? Like I didn't bring a truck. I don't own one. I just drive for a living. Yeah. My friend, Tim Norton from Alberta, who will listen to this eventually. G'day Tim. He came all the way from where he lives South of Brooks, Alberta. Okay. And he brought a trailer belonging to his friend, Clifford Smith, who works in the same industry. And Clifford's an interesting character. He lives right in Brooks. He's, um, he's very forthright and very out there. He's gotten in trouble with the provincial government and the law in Alberta before for having political messaging on the side of his trailers. This is a guy who has been self-employed and worked hard his whole life. And he takes no shit from anybody. Um, he's an amazing. He's an amazing guy. So Clifford gives Tim one of his trailers, and then they put all these messages down the side of the trailer, like decal-printed messages, you know, basically talking about all these issues, giving the government the finger, or whatever. So Tim comes down, gets a spot on Wellington Street. He snuck in the night before and was with that first group of trucks right on Wellington. So Tim finds out these rumors about the fact that they're going to freeze bank accounts and do all this stuff. And he's like, well, it's not my trailer. It's Clifford's. I don't want it to get seized. It was Tim's own truck, but the plates he was running on were actually belonging to the cattle feedlot company that he hauled cows and feed for. So he's like, I don't want to get those guys involved in this. I don't want that cattle company out in Alberta to get screwed over because I'm here. And, yes. he, and he bounced the night before. So, like, he somehow managed to finagle his way out of downtown. He got his truck backed out, did some, like, three-point turns, whatever. He left Ottawa and basically drove almost all the way back to Alberta in one sitting. <laughs> oh, 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 oh. <laughs> and he, he also escaped the sort of uh, bank account freezing dragnet and kept the people he works for and Clifford's trailer out of Government Hawk. But I mean, these are these are the sort of decisions you're forced to
1: make when the government, you know, they force your hand with this stuff, right? That's right. That's right. And um, and everyone has a different temperament. And I, I think it's true to say that truckers are a little more independent-minded than the general population. But, but everyone has a different appetite for risk and they have a different situation. I heard a story. Now, uh, this is secondhand and I have to go check it out. Um, but I heard a story where a company pulled a truck. The truck has been on in Ottawa for a week and the company says to the driver, okay, you got to get out of there now. This is our truck. You got to get out of there. And apparently a bunch of the truckers ran that particular sp- intersection in ottawa pooled money and bought the truck this is what i've been told <laughs> they bought the truck so it could still stay in ottawa <laughs> oh wow yes so these are just these are fabulous stories and we don't know them right so um right. so this is what i think my job is right now is to record these stories to right. put them down to let because you know um yes some of the truckers that i've told other Interview uh, about other interviews they had no idea that went on they were there in ottawa for three weeks but they were in a different neighborhood and they don't know about all this other stuff so so speaking of
0: risk there's a fellow from ontario who came to the convoy his name's harold jonker yeah he he owns a small trucking company uh kind of up near smithville which is sort of near where i grew up actually one of my friends in high school her father drove for harold many many years ago yeah, Mr. Uh, uh, Larry Henderson, he's no longer with us. But anyway, Harold goes to Ottawa, a bunch of his trucks. He's sort of involved with the sort of Niagara area convoy. And a year and a half later, they charge him with mischief, like after the fact. And what a coincidence. Harold was featured in this sort of independent documentary about the Freedom Convoy. Uh, that's done by... The, I'm trying to remember the, the name of the... I'll have to put it in the show notes or, or send it to you after the fact, but this really well-done documentary about the Freedom Convoy featured Harold Junker and a lot of footage from the Niagara Convoy, interviews with him, his drivers, his family, other people that um you know were affected by the COVID regime and took part. And what do you know? A little while after Harold appears in this thing, then these charges come down. Like... So do you feel like this book project you're working on, I mean, maybe there's still freedom of speech and maybe they'll leave you alone, but like, do you have any like fear about what's going to come down once you publish this, this anthology
1: of stories as it were? Well, I have a bit of concern for the people that I'm interviewing because, as, as you say, you know, it was more than a year later and then they suddenly decide to to charge Harold, who I, who I have, have interviewed, um, um, with criminal charges. You know, um, you took more than a year to decide that what he did was, was criminal and, of course, it wasn't criminal in any way. This is, this is the state. This is the police um, being corrupt, being political and it should frighten all of us um so I have some concern about the people that I'm interviewing and and writing about because they're you know maybe no one has heard about them before maybe no one actually knew they were in Ottawa and now I don't want them to be targeted um you know by by activists and I you know um in one case I only used the the man's first name and I didn't include a picture of him because his wife is a bit concerned about her her safety if he's not at home her physical safety and and you know so so have some concern about that for me personally, um, you know, I have spent my entire career saying things that were against the grain of mainstream journalism. So, so really, what those people want to do is ignore me. They just pretend I don't exist. They don't want to platform me and let anyone know about my work. So, I expect that is the, um, you know, that that is that is what's in store for me with this book. So, um, you know, they're just going to pretend I don't exist. I didn't do this work. It doesn't, you know, it, it never happened. Right.
0: Right. So are you publishing this yourself or do you have some backing from a publishing house?
1: No. So my first book was published with Penguin Canada, and um, the process was not um, a good one. Even back, even back in the early 90s, it was, it was a, a system that made no sense from the, from the writer's perspective. Um, so the last several books I have done, um, you know, I wrote a book about um, the UN's climate body. And, and I had been blogging and I had collected all of this information. And I thought, I have to get this information out there now. I can't wait a year and a half while my agent sends it to a publisher and they take three months to say, oh no, we're going to pass. And then they send it to another publisher and it gets rejected 16 times by then. You know, the world needs this information now. So so I have I am very familiar with how you publish books on Amazon yourself. And because I have a group of, of friends who are journalists who, you know, will read my manuscript and help me catch the typos, um, you know, I have a community of people who who write for a living and who I can draw on before I publish my book to make sure that the quality is is up there. So so that's what I'll be doing.
0: Right. So self-publishing is the way to go.
1: It is the way to go. And, you know, a lot of a lot of um, authors, established authors are figuring this out. So, um, you know, Scott Adams, the Dilbert cartoonist, he is about to publish everything that he's ever written. Self-publishing because his uh, his publishers have cut him loose because he said some politically incorrect stuff. So, I mean, he's just saying this is the best time of my life in terms of intellectual freedom and being able to creative freedom.
0: The platform you and I both use, Substack, quite famously started so that people could be outside the regular channels of media and publishing. And, you know, people like Glenn Greenwald and Matt Taibbi, who we mentioned previously, and I think Substack's model has been very helpful. There's lots of really good content on there, and, you know, anybody can use it. I had a, you know, one of the few people in my family who's actually willing to talk to me about this and disagrees with me about quite a bit is my little brother, and you know he'll listen to the odd show, he'll read some things I put I write, and then he'll, you know, whenever I see him in person, he's quite open about disagreeing with me, which is great, and I wish more people did that. So I said to him like, start a Substack, it's free, and if people want to pay for your stuff, Substack takes ten percent, the rest is yours. You know, attack your older brother. Maybe he'll make some money at it. Go for it. You know, it's online, yes. it's free. You have a computer, go do it. You know, yes. So, I mean, on the one hand, it really sucks that the mainstream media still has this grip on the narrative and grip on the government, and the government lives in fear of the media now. Um, one of I mentioned Curtis Yarvin previously, uh, one of his key insights into how the cathedral functions is that. You know, in the United States, because of the First Amendment, the media is basically untouchable, which on the one hand is a good thing. You want to have freedom of speech. You don't want to be interfered with while you're holding power to account. However, in 2023 and in recent decades, the media have decided that they're the power and they're going to force the government to do what they want. And they have the power to basically cancel politicians. Right. Or to cut off campaign funds, or to interfere in relation in normal political relationships, because they basically can't be touched. They can hide behind that's the cool. they can hide behind the First Amendment. The First Amendment is supposed to protect holding power to account. It's not a license for you to take power. But in Yarvin's analysis, that's exactly what they've done.
1: Yes, the media is about power with no accountability. There is no real accountability for media malfeasance. That's right.
0: Yeah, so one of the sort of release valves for that are platforms like Substack and the fact that the internet, despite many flaws with it and the actors on it and its various platforms, is still mostly free
1: yes yes and you know we got very lazy i think we wanted to go to one place like facebook or instagram or twitter and we wanted to just live there and have every everyone interacting and maybe we just have to go back to an earlier time on the internet where you went and chucked out your fa- your favorite websites you know you had a list of them in your in your bookmarks and you had to go do that work but at, but at least then you weren't being censored and you weren't your your information wasn't being managed the way it is because Facebook. You know, I, I got off Facebook a few years ago because I'm a very serious journalist who takes, you know, my fact checking very careful, uh, you know, very seriously. And I'm very careful about what I say and what I don't say. And I had a page for my blog and Facebook started to say that, um, you know, what I my journalism, my journalism was, um, you know, oh, you should go here and get the latest info about COVID, a part of me, that's when I shut down my Facebook page, right? So who the hell do you think you are, Facebook, to decide that my journalism is is flawed? No, I'm a professional journalist who's been doing this for decades, and I have dealt with libel lawyers and libel lawsuits. Um, You know, I actually think I know what I'm doing, and don't you dare... think that you know when when i've been on this story for months and you you know you are a complete newbie to this story that you actually know what's true so you know stop you know i stopped going for base facebook i started getting my my information from places like substack and i think you know perhaps that's that's going to be um how it is at least in this in this phase of things right so you, you when do you plan on publishing your book how long till we see it well i'm hoping it's going to be available for sale by the second anniversary of the convoy, which is January, February, coming up. So it's now mid-August and I am rushing. I am rushing to get all of these Eastern voices into, into my manuscript because I felt I had a bunch of people from Ontario. I had some people from out West. You know, we know, um, but we hadn't really, we didn't really know what happened in Eastern Canada. And so that was the purpose of getting in a car and driving for three weeks and going in and meeting all of these amazing folks in in other parts of the country.
0: Yeah. When I, when I worked in, I lived sort of in Alberta and the Northwest Territories working for about seven years on and off and with many eastern transplants lots of newfies, lots of guys from cape breton nova scotia new brunswick because there's more work out west and it pays better than at home and all salt of the earth fellas especially the newfies. and you know i'm really looking forward to uh reading your interviews with them and hearing about uh their involvement with the convoy i think that's that's going to be fun to fun to see
1: yes thank you i'm i'm looking forward to finishing
0: them up right all right um so in the meantime how can my listeners
1: find you? Where are you at? Well, I am on Twitter. Um, I, I am terribly um, shadow banned on Twitter. It seems like pointless, but I do say something every once in a while on Twitter. I'm at no, at no consensus is my handle there. Um, I have a sub stack that is called thank you truckers. Dot substack.com. So thank you, truckers, Substack. Um, and I am blogging every day. I have something. Um, it's sort of a first draft of my book. And um, and I have done a children's book. Um, one of the truckers, when I went to to interview him, they he, him and his wife showed me this binder where he, their daughter had taken all of these thank you notes um, that he'd received while he was sitting up there on Wellington for three weeks. And he's an Opa, he's a grandfather, he has 19 grandkids, and so I made a little kids' book. When Opa went to Ottawa, this is what happened. People said thank you thank you. People brought him food. People said, we're praying for you. Thank you for giving us hope. This is what happened when Opa went to Ottawa. So Opa really was this hero, just an ordinary grandfather who got behind his his wheel. And um, so that's available on, on, on Amazon. It's called Opa's Convoy Letters. And um, it's important that kids know what happened in Ottawa because they see the mainstream media, too. And if we don't actually make a point of telling them the other side of the story, a lot of them are never going to know about it.
0: Right. Yeah. And that would be a tragedy. Um, And thank you very much for giving voice to uh, other members of the working class and and such as they are today under the Trudeau regime, um, you know, scapegoated enemies of the state. Um, I think what you're doing is great. I look forward to your book coming out and, uh, on behalf of myself and my audience, thank you very much
1: for your time, Donna. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. All right. Way of the road.